is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 1. Inasmuch as many underta have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you might have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, the Apostle Paul said in Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Father, we pray that you will do so through Andrew today. Please build us up with your correction, rebuke, and encouragement with great patience and careful instruction. For without you, we perish. Do so today for the sake and honor of our great King, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you uh, after a couple of weeks out, uh, or just really a week out, but two weeks out of the pulpit. Open up to the book of Luke. We're going to be in the book of Luke through Easter. Uh, we're not going to be able to look at every uh, story and narrative in, in Luke. It's a very long book between Luke and Acts, actually, which is uh, the, the Lucan corpus of the New Testament. You have about 25% uh, of the New Testament. So we are going to do something that I've never done before, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it. In following through Luke, we're going to be stopping in at each uh, of the miracles that he does. Maybe not each, but a number of the miracles. So we're going to be organizing our study that way, you know, sometimes we'll do parables or something like that, but I've never done a series that just looked at the miracles uh, and said, what is it that Jesus was doing beyond the healing or the, uh, the breaking of the bread and, and multiplying the loaves, that kind of thing? What, what's going on with regards to that? But in order to do that, I want to look at just the first sentence of Luke today, which happens to be four verses. Uh, the, the, actually, the ESV does a pretty good job of capturing the fact that this is just one sentence in Greek. Uh, Luke is a, is a well-trained uh, person. He was a physician at that time, and his Greek was really good. Uh, people who, who read the, the book recognize that, and, and even in this sentence alone, it's formation, emphasis, all of those things. And, and I want to focus on the idea of certainty, which is the very last word in the Greek sentence, and, and really ask the question, you know, can, can we really have the kind of certainty that Luke is desirous, that Theophilus had? You know, we just sang that in that line about the spirit who comes and clothes faith with certainty. What does that look like? 
for us. I know a number of people struggle with this, particularly in this day and age. Uh, just a couple weeks before Christmas, I came upon a New York Times uh, column written by a fellow by the name of Nicholas Kristof, uh, and he was interacting with Philip Yancey. Many of you know Philip Yancey as a fairly well-known evangelical writer, speaker, and Kristof was asking him questions like this, isn't it possible to admire Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount without buying into the miracles? Why can't we subscribe to Jesus' message of love while dropping the walking on the water, the multiplying of the loaves of fishes, and the raising of Jesus, or the raising of Lazarus from the dead? Uh, he wants Jesus to be a good teacher, uh, at least this is where the question is going, uh, without necessarily the problem of the, the supernatural, the things that we can't explain. Why? Well, he goes on to say, he says, I, I wonder, in embracing miracles, don't we reject our own rationality? It's interesting, you know, Dick uh, came up and, and talked about uh, one of the things that drew him to Christ Church 50 years ago was a guy by the name of Francis Schaeffer and the connection there. These were some of the very same ideas that Schaeffer was writing about in the 60s and the 70s, uh, book called Escape from Reason, where he talked about the upper story and the lower story, uh, where we have the upper story. That's where exist things like the supernatural, miracles, things that uh, we accept by faith, but we can't necessarily exchange, uh, under, or explain. And then the lower story, which is the, the place of reason. This is science and all of these things that we can't explain. One of the, the problems for folks uh, then, the questions that they were asking, and I think we're still asking, is do we have to suspend reason in order to get into the upper story? Uh, or do these exist together in some coherent whole? And this is exactly the question that this author is asking. Uh, in embracing miracles, don't we reject our own rationality? He goes on to say, in my travels, I've met all kinds of faith healers who claim to make the lame walk, the blind see. I, I don't believe them, and I'd be even less likely to believe accounts that were written six decades after the fact by someone who had never met the healer, like the accounts in the Gospel of John. Uh, why would we be skeptical of eyewitness accounts of UFOs, but not of Gospel accounts written decades later by people who weren't even eyewitnesses? Again, these are the kinds of questions that people ask, and, and we need to be honest about those things. Uh, as a body of folks that comes together, you rub shoulders with people, sometimes in the academy, sometimes in your place of work. Uh, we wrestle with these notions of faith and science, particularly in the West, uh, where we are so heavily bought into an empirical system, uh, naturalistic explanations for this, that, uh, and the other things. How do we, how do we live with this? One of the things that uh, Charles Taylor, who is a philosopher, he said, we live in a cross-pressured age where we're living between sort of this materialistic mindset and the notion that many of us have that there's something more than that, uh, that, there is, that there is a supernatural, that there, is, uh, there are things that we can't explain. 
I mean, we know that just very sort of tacitly. You, you love uh, somebody. Can you explain all of that? Can you explain all of the biochemistry that goes into that? Can, do you have a rational explanation for how you know that you love someone or how you know that somebody loves you? And the answer is the, not necessarily. You know, we, we can't for sure explain all of those things, and yet we can be certain of them. And, and that's, where, that's where Luke is moving us. This is where he's working with, uh, with Theophilus as he's writing these letters. This is what he's hoping that his audience, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, will come to. And so we want to explore that uh, even this morning. Ultimately, our goal is, as Jack Miller said, uh, to, to draw near to God and that God would draw near to us. Yeah, as we study Luke, as we walk through that, that is my prayer, that for each one of us, we would find our hearts drawing near and nearer to God, and that we would experience Him drawing nearer and nearer to us in the process. So let's start with the narrative. Two points today, a narrative for certainty. Uh, let's start with the narrative. Let me first introduce to you Luke. I've already alluded to a little bit about his background. Many of you know this. Uh, he wrote for us two books of the New Testament, Luke and Acts. Uh, if you look at the book of Acts, you recognize that it is the second book uh, where he says in the first book, O Theophilus, so the same uh, intended audience, same writer. I, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, and now he's going to take up the story from the time that Jesus raised from the dead. So Luke wrote these two books. They make up a little over 25% of the New Testament uh, literature. Uh, Luke was a physician. We know that, Colossians 4.14. Uh, Luke, the beloved physician. Uh, as such, you know, for that day and age, he was a man of science. He was uh, a person for whom rationality had not left the building. He was exploring. He wanted to know the world in which he lived, and he asked those questions. Uh, Luke uh, was uh, a historian. He went about, as he says here in this passage, in a very careful orderly way, exploring the accounts of, of people that were going on. Uh, he did it as a companion of Paul. Uh, we know that he traveled with Paul for some of his missionary journeys. Uh, we see that in Acts and some of the famous we passages where Luke will say things like, we did this and we did that. Uh, he is there with Paul as these things are happening. So he is close to the source of a lot of things. Uh, he's probably a Gentile, uh, not uh, out of a Jewish background. Theophilus is probably a patron of his, though we don't know exactly who Theophilus is. A lot of ink has been spilt over the, the, the nature of this person whose name literally means uh, lover of God. Uh, but we don't know exactly who he is, but the way that he addresses him as most excellent Theophilus seems to say that he has some status and is very much so, or very probably a, a patron, maybe even paying for the, the manuscripting of the book. You know, they didn't have Xeroxes and going out and copying things, certainly didn't have PDF files and all of that kind of stuff. They, they had to do it by hand, and somebody had to pay for that. And so there's a good chance that Theophilus was this guy. So, 
That's who Luke is. The story or the narrative that he is about uh, compiling as he talks about it here is about Jesus. Uh, We see that, of course, throughout the book of Luke. Uh, It begins right away with the birth of John the Baptist, who's a forerunner to Jesus, and then, of course, jumps into the Jesus narrative. We pick up in Luke a number of things about his birth. You maybe have just read through those again as we've come through the Christmas season. Uh, But it's focused on Jesus and and what he came to do, who he was, what he came to do, all of the things about Jesus. That's what uh, Luke says in Acts, as I just mentioned to you. I'm repeating to you the things about Jesus. That, and it centers on that. I'll come back to that in just a minute. I've already alluded to the fact that he was careful uh, about uh, in going through those. This was a time when these stories were well known. He says there are many ha- have undertaken uh, telling the story, compile of the things, a narrative, just as those who at the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the, wo- the word. Um, there, a lot of these stories were floating. And, and people knew about them, and they could be verified. They could be checked. Some of you remember Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he talks about uh, the, the fact of Jesus' resurrection and how he first appeared to Cephas and then to the women and then to 500, many of whom are still alive today. This is one of the things that is really sort of confidence-forming when it comes to the Scriptures, that these were things that were not happening in a small corner of the world. These were things that were uh, able, that were being talked about and could be verified or denied. You know, as Luke is writing about this exorcism or as Luke is writing about this healing, you could go and talk to people who were alive during that time, and they could say yes or no. Uh, they could verify yes or no. We hear about Jesus and that he appeared to 500, many of whom are alive today. You can go and you can check yes or no. A- and as you continue to hear back yes from the various people, these, these stories have authenticity to them. They're no longer just legend that cannot be verified but they are true because they are verifiable in that sense. So it's one of the confidences that we have is that the Scriptures, so much of them happened within the lifetime of people who were around as eyewitnesses and could see these things. Furthermore, with, with Luke, there is a, there's a real uh, carefulness to his method. He, he names places. He names names. He names um, uh, titles of people like Tetrarch and different things like that. And again, all of this is verifiable or not. You know, if you think about like a legend like Thor, mythology, stuff like that, they're very general. You know, you get sort of this uh, caricature of this person who is going out and doing things, but it's not talking about folks and places and things that can be verified or denied. You know, when Luke is writing this, he's very much writing this as history. Uh, it's not legend. In fact, uh, one guy, his name's Sir William Ramsey, he was a Scottish, uh, he was a Scottish academician uh, in the area of history, 
he decided to put it to the test. He said, there are so many names and places in Luke, and he was somewhat of a skeptic. He was not a believer. This was uh, around the turn of the century of the 18 to the 1900s. Uh, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set out to disprove, that was his intention, uh, the things that are here in this narrative. And what he sent out, set out to disprove, he ended up believing. Because he said, these things are so verifiable. There are 95 places alone, uh, geographical locations alone in Acts, all of which are verifiable. Some people have questioned Luke's uses of titles like Tetrarch uh, and, and really said, no, that doesn't really seem to fit. They, they didn't have those kind of rulers. And then uh, more recent archaeological discoveries have found out that, yes, indeed, not only did they have tetrarchs at that time, but these tetrarchs were particular to this particular place where Luke uses this title. So Luke is very careful. He's very specific. He's writing to, for us a narrative, a story uh, that can be trusted. But and this is maybe the third thing now under narrative, if you are a note taker. Sorry, this is a little bit stream of consciousness this morning. But uh, the, the third thing that I would say under this narrative is that he is telling us uh, an orderly account. That doesn't mean chronologically, and it certainly doesn't mean that he's putting everything in. But he has a purpose to it. And that purpose is to emphasize the person and work of Jesus. Remember, at the very beginning, Luke was writing about Jesus to Theophilus. Uh, he, he wants us to understand who he was and what he came to do. And, and one of the reasons that I emphasize this is that contra to so many world religions uh, where what we have is a compendium of teaching from the central figure of that religion, uh, what we have in Jesus is we have a life that was lived for a purpose. What we have in Jesus is somebody who came to do something in order to rescue a people. What we have in Jesus is not just a way of life. We have a way of life. But we have a way of life that is rooted in a finished work. And, and this is one of the things that I think sets apart the gospel story so clearly. When we meet Jesus, we don't just meet a guru. When we meet Jesus, we meet somebody who has come from heaven to earth. He has entered our world. He has taken on our flesh. He has lived a life that we couldn't live. He has died a, a death that we deserve to die. And he has been risen again so that we can have life forever with him. And that is Luke's point. And he is coming to Theophilus and he's saying, there is a narrative that is so central for you to understand and his message then comes to us through the ages, and he says, it's about Jesus. It's not just that he was a good teacher who had a lot of good things to say, and if you obey the Sermon on the Mount, if you, you know, shape your life that way, you're going to have a better life. He's saying, this is about Jesus who died for you because you could not save yourself, uh, and he rose for you 
so that you could have life everlasting. And I hope that over the course of these next several weeks that you are drawn in by this person, this central figure, Jesus, and you begin to see this is somebody that I really want to surrender my life to, that I really want to live in fellowship with because he really is different than anyone else that, uh, that I could follow. And Luke's point is that we can know this. Now, this is where it gets a little different. So we have a narrative for certainty. In, in this long Greek sentence, uh, last night Lisa and I were talking about this, and she went grammar nerd on me for a minute. She, uh, I said, well, let's diagram that sentence. I was like, whoa, <laughs> settle down. Uh, so you can try it. You can check it with Lisa, uh, the, uh, the English diagram of the sentence. But in the Greek, uh, the very, this is what's called a period sentence. And uh, the idea here is that the last word is the focus of the sentence. And the last word is this word certainty. Uh, as Luke is writing here, he really wants Theophilus, who is maybe his patron, certainly the one to whom he's addressing both of these letters, both Luke and Acts, he, he wants him to be sure about this person of Jesus whose life is at the center of history as he is laying it out. But what's interesting to me, and I don't know how you think about certainty, you know, when I think about certainty, my mind immediately goes to sort of the scientific realm. You know, something that is provable. Like if something is certain, it is provable. And, and, and so much of this book, from the beginning to the end, is dealing with things that are supernatural. I mean, before we get out of the first chapter, we're talking about the incarnation. We're talking about angels coming and proclaiming these things. And I'm like, wow, I am way out of my depth in terms of proving this. You know, so now am I resolved to the upper story? Is that my only hope? Or can I unite somehow the upper story and the lower story to use Schaefer's idea? You know, what does certainty mean in the context of this? And, and how can, how can we, we know something? That's one of the reasons why I was drawn to the miracles. You know, as we, as we study these, that, uh, these occurrences, which... We can't necessarily explain from a rational standpoint, what is it that they teach us about the Lord? You know, what is it that they teach us about their ministry? How is, how is our own faith, how is our own certainty affected by the supernatural? Uh, there's a tension there to be sure, but that doesn't necessarily mean that things are at odds. And that's something that I think is important for us to wrestle with, uh, doubt. I, I love the fact that Luke is writing to Theophilus, and, and maybe this is where it becomes really personal for each of us here, because Theophilus literally means a lover of God, uh, Theo. Uh, philos, you know, a friend or a lover of, of God, those two words put together. And in a certain sense, I, my guess is that many of you are here because you would say, I am a Theophilus. I am a lover of God. Uh, and Luke is writing then to each one of us. Um, he's writing to us 
because he knows that we struggle. He, he's writing to Theophilus, even though his name is lover of God, he's writing that he may have certainty. He's writing because he, he knows for whatever reason that Theophilus still has questions and, and he still has doubts. And this is something that is so true for all of us. You know, there are areas in our life where we are so much like the man that Jesus encounters where he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, this is the way that we operate so often or we experience our way through life. And, and, and what Luke is saying is that there is a confidence, there is a certainty to be had. Now, I think one of the things that we need to do is we need to jettison this idea that certainty has to do with proving everything, a at least proving everything from a scientific standpoint. Uh, actually, the word group on, on certainty there, if you look at how it's translated at different times, oftentimes means safety or security or certainty. So again, we tend to, from a Western empirical mindset, we tend to put it with something logical or something empirical, but, but the idea is, is that there is something that is secure. There's a solid rock to stand on. There, we are safe you know, when we come and we accept the gospel story. And, and we really should understand that because when you start to talk about doubt and you know, knowledge and certainty from an empirical standpoint, we have to acknowledge that every belief that we have, uh, whether it be a scientific belief or whether it be a spiritual belief, everything has at some level a faith commitment that precedes it. You know, if I were to tell you that uh, I can stand on this table. There, there's some faith commitment about the nature of wood and all of these different things that precedes my assertion that I can stand out on this table. Uh, if I were to tell you, for instance, then that miracles uh, don't exist, you know, there is a faith commitment that says only things that can be empirically proven actually exist. Uh, faith commitments are always at play in our life. And, and, and what, what Luke is wanting Theophilus and, and us to understand is that we, we can be secure. You know, so even in this world where we, we feel this pressure, and some of you are in, you know, the fields of sciences or academics, and, you know, people look at your faith commitments and say, isn't that just something for the weak people who, who need something to lean on in times of trouble? And incidentally, when we say this, we recognize that this is, these are not just philosophical exercises. We, we live this out day by day. I mean, when you get a diagnosis and you have a, 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 a sense to pray for this, you are believing in something that you can't explain. Uh, and and uh, we lean into that. When we make moral decisions, we are saying we are more than just the sum of our atoms and neurons and that there is, there is a... Uh, a rule or a law in this universe to which we are to conform. So these things are very practical. 
Uh, but part of what Luke wants us to see is that we can be certain as we explore the life of Jesus, his finished work, we can be certain that we are held by him and, and that we are secure as we go forward. No embarrassment needed, even in a world uh, that is overrun by science. Uh, there is no embarrassment needed. We are secure in Jesus. I promise you, uh, well, I won't promise, but I think this is the last time I'll refer to this. Last week I mentioned uh, my fear factor uh, exercise in the eel tank. Well, prior to going in or reaching into the eel tank, we, we had to do this exercise where you uh, hung 40 feet above the stadium and the, the first couple people that dropped were eliminated and then the people that were able to hang on went on and they were blowing this industrial fan at you. Now, I'm not particularly scared of heights, but I, al I also don't relish the fact of falling to a hard concrete floor uh, from 40 feet. Uh, so what is it that made me confident in able to go up, stand on this platform, allow them to drop that thing off and hang there until I fell? Well, there were several things. Uh, one, I, I knew that this show had been running for a number of years at uh, Universal Studios, and uh, they were continuing to do it. They hadn't been shut down, which meant that there hadn't been anybody killed recently. Uh, secondly, they, they put me in this very uncomfortable harness uh, that was uh, tight to my body. Uh, it was checked and double-checked by the, the show's engineers in order to make sure that everything was tight. Third, uh, I could see them attaching a rope to my back, uh, which again was checked, double-checked, triple-checked by various people uh, who were there. A and so I, I felt reasonably secure uh, to step out on this platform and allow it to drop away with 40 feet between me and the ground. But keep in mind, I don't know all the physics of everything that goes on in this. I can't explain it all. Uh, I never actually saw my connection in the back. Uh, I, I believe it was there, but I didn't see it. I couldn't verify it with my eyes. I couldn't explain to you how all of the pulleys and everything else that worked or that was uh, up there worked. I couldn't do that. But that doesn't mean that I didn't have reason to be certain. A and this is exactly what Luke is saying. He's saying, here are the eyewitnesses. Here are people whose lives have been changed. Uh, here are all of the things that I myself saw and can record to you. You have every reason to believe and trust. It reminds me uh, a little bit of C.S. Lewis who talks about you know, we, we can't look directly at the sun and see everything about it uh, and, and explain it. But by the sun, we can see everything else around us. And, and Luke is coming to us and saying there is confidence, uh, a proper confidence for you now that you may be certain of who you are. And as I said, uh, as you find your life submitted to Jesus, you will find that you begin to step out in ways that, uh, that betray that confidence. Uh, you will find yourself praying. 
you will find yourself uh, following a moral code that goes against the things that you may hear or understand from a worldly perspective. You will find yourself trusting Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief. And so my prayer as we come, as we go through this, is that God would meet us and that we would draw closer to his heart even as he draws closer to ours. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this message. Lord, we pray that uh, this, this work, this book of Luke, we, we pray that as we press into it over the coming weeks, that you would become more and more real to us, that uh, some of the things that we struggle with uh, would, would come into focus as we learn to trust you, as we learn to rest upon you day by day by day. Father, we pray this. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.